Father in heaven, it's a great uh, privilege to hear your word and to consider what you have to say to us. And we pray for each of us that you'd give us humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word. Um, Father, we pray for understanding today as we come to a part of the Bible that on first hearing is perhaps very strange to us. Um, Pray that I'd be clear and faithful to what you say. Uh, Please uh, write the truth on our hearts and open our eyes to the truth. Um, We pray that you would help us to um, receive your word as you would have us do by the power of your spirit. And we ask for your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Um, I know almost nothing about art, as in painting. I, I just, I really don't know anything about it. I'm a complete cultural philistine uh, in that area. Um, where I come from, I might be called a bogan with regards to that area. Um, when I finished school, my family went on holiday to London and uh, actually went via New York. It's kind of the only time I've done that sort of big thing, um, about 30 years ago now. And in London, we got to walk around sort of several free art galleries. It's uh, one of the lovely things there. So National Portrait Gallery, um, there's the Queen's Private Gallery. I can't remember if that was free or not. And then there was a, another big one, maybe the British Museum. I can't remember, but we walked around them. And I got to see some of the finest art in all the world. Uh, And it was pretty much completely lost on me. Um, With three exceptions that I can still remember. Um, The first was uh, in the Queen's collection, I think. I think I saw a few Rembrandts. And even for someone like me, I I, I could get it. I mean, they're just unbelievable. They're better than a photograph. Just, Just staggering. As you look at this massive picture... And, and it just captures reality better than a photograph. Um, truly amazing. And then we went to one place, I can't remember where, and we walked around and saw hundreds of pictures and just completely lost on me. I mean, I, anyway, so, but then I walked around a corner and I saw one and it was Van Gogh's Sunflowers. And again, even for someone like me, I went, okay, <laughs> I, I can get that one. That's, so that's the second. But the one that was uh, perhaps most surprising was what happened the following year when I returned to Australia and a collection of Impressionist paintings came through Australia the following year. And again, it's all pretty lost on me, but I remember uh, as I was walking around, I saw two paintings by an artist who I can't remember, don't know who it was, Um, but I think I got it. I could be wrong, but I think I actually got it. There were two Impressionist paintings One was from London and one was from New York, so that's uh, possibly partly why I got it. They were completely different to the Rembrandt. Um, They weren't like a photograph at all. Um, The one of London had a big picture at the front and it was an English policeman, a London policeman, a bobby, large, but sort of almost like a cartoon, uh, almost like a caricature of, of them. Uh, and then and there was an out-of-proportion telephone booth that wasn't kind of in the right perspective. And there was the, the parliament sort of in the background. You, you could tell it was that, but it wasn't like a, a classic drawing or anything like that. Um, and there are all these different things about London. And as I looked at it, I just got it. I thought, that's exactly the impression that I had of London when I visited. And these guys are called the Impressionists. And... They didn't need photos because the camera had been invented, so you didn't need Rembrandt, you just gave the impression. I thought, I think, I I love it, that's my favourite picture. And there was one of uh, New York as well, the Impressionists. It's funny, isn't it, in our age of YouTube and memes and gifts and films and photos, to say nothing about paintings, 
that when God wanted to communicate with us, he didn't give us a picture. It's funny, isn't it? He didn't give us a movie. And it's not like he couldn't do it. It's not like it's kind of beyond him. I mean, take a look outside. I mean, it's not like it's beyond God to have given us a gif or a meme. I mean, he could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't give us a Rembrandt. He gave us the Bible. He gave us a book. And yet the Bible as a book uh, has similarities to an art gallery. There are many different types of writing. There's history, which is sort of like the portraits in the National Gallery. They're seeking to accurately portray what happened. There's poetry, which is sort of like a landscape, portrays beauty and grandeur. There's the wisdom literature, which is kind of like drawings. And when we come to the book of Revelation, I understand uh, if you've been here week after week, that's uh, what you've been Uh, hearing, if you you, uh, just popped in today, then this is what we're looking at. This is a type of literature that is very different altogether. It's called apocalyptic. Um, And when we come to this type of literature, we can often make a big mistake. We can read through this as if it's history, as if it's like we're reading a newspaper, but it's not giving us history. Uh, Revelation is giving us a vision of the future. We're told at the start of chapter 4 that the the guy who's writing it, John, has a vision and he's taken behind the curtain and he sees the things which are are about to be, the things that, that are about to take place. And so it is a vision. And as we get this vision of the future, looking behind the, the, the curtain, it's not being communicated by a Rembrandt. It's not like a photograph. It's being communicated much more by an impressionist. It's the impression that we get from this writing that matters. And as we read through this type of literature, we can read it and just go, what on earth is going on? And there's loads of imagery that's going on. um, But that imagery is to communicate an impression. And we can make the mistake as we read through it to get caught up in the details and be sort of looking at it really closely and lose what's actually going on. What we need to do is like what I had to do with that photo, the um, painting from London, is you just just get the impression. Don't worry that it's sort of out of proportion or there are bits that don't quite match up, but what's the impression that we get from these chapters or this part of God's Word? And so with that little uh, intro in mind, and I take it that's what you've been doing if you're here week after week, um, but we're going to hear... Uh, today's section which is Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Catherine's going to read for us which is great. Um, So if you've got a Bible uh, turn to Revelation 17. I've got one of these and it's on page 867. Catherine's going to read Revelation 17 and slightly risky but I'm going to ask you a question after this so, so just so you know what the question is and that is what impression do you get from this chapter? What impression does it give you? It speaks of a city the city is Babylon. Okay? So what's the impression that the writing's giving you as Catherine reads? Thanks, Catherine. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, 
precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, So the city's Babylon. Just what impressions do you get just from reading that, just from hearing it? What what are some sort of first impressions? Have Have a go. Be bold. Yeah, so earthly power through the ages, there's power there, earthly power. Yep. What other impressions do we get of the city there? Yeah. Grotesque, yeah. There's the kind of really grotesque imagery, isn't there? There's seven horns and and ten heads. Well, the other way around. Ten heads and seven. There's seven heads and ten horns, yes. Yep. What else? Yeah, luxury. Yep, so the city has this, this great luxury. Uh, within it, yes. What's the city? What's this? What's Babylon? What's she pictured as? A prostitute. Yes. So she's a woman. She's luxurious. She's a prostitute. That's this city. You, you get the image of this city. So she's a powerful city that's very wealthy and is a prostitute. You see, we're actually getting the impression that's being communicated about Babylon. Um, 
So verses 1 to 6, I'll, I'll go through a few things. We'll do the same thing with chapter 18, but I'll just give you a little kind of uh, sketch of, uh, of chapter 17. So in 1 to 6, we get Babylon the Great. Um, you see that's the title given, and, and she's portrayed as a woman and as a prostitute, and it's uh, her by her adulteries, uh, she sort of seduced uh, the world. She rides upon a beast, okay? Um, we just bought a Honda Odyssey, um, so we ride on a beast now, you know? And she, she rides on a beast, um, and hers has, it has seven uh, heads and ten horns. We'll see that in a sec. But for the moment, we're just being told about this lady. She's a prostitute, and she rides on this beast, and the kings of the earth come to her. That's where she gets her power. And notice that she's opposed, that she's drinking from a cup, and that's the blood of the followers of Jesus, Okay, so her adulteries and her power and her wealth and her kinship with the kings of the world is being used to oppose the followers of Jesus. That's one to six. Verses seven to 13 give us the impression about the beast that the woman rides on. Um, So this is where we get the imagery with seven heads uh, and ten horns. Seven is like the number of completeness. Uh, within the book of Revelation, when you have seven, things are complete. Ten is the number of power. Um, so like ten, it's a common number in the Roman military. So ten is power. So seven heads, he- heads are authority. Um, so that's kind of representing kings. And uh, ten horns, that's, horns is strength, power. So complete number of kings with lots of power. She's riding on it. So this city is riding on kind of worldly power. Does that make sense? The, the, the rulers of the world and the power of the world, that's what she's, she and that's her machine, if you like, and she's riding on it. Um, so that's 7 to 13. Um, and it's, they're joined together in what they're doing. You can see at the start of verse 14, uh, 7 verse 14, over the page for me. Um, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast, they will wage war against the lamb. So that's what Babylon, the prostitute, and the beast, that's what they're doing. They're united together and they're fighting against the lamb, that's Jesus, um, the lamb who's slain. So they're opposed to God's people, to Jesus. Um, But they're not going to win. Verse 14, they'll wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. With him uh, will be his called, his chosen and faithful followers. So they're not going to win. They look very powerful and they're opposed to God's people and they're drinking the blood of God's people, but they're not going to win. And then verses 15 to 18, it's an unusual thing happens. And that is civil war. So the beast kind of turns on the woman. So the woman who has seduced the beast, uh, they kind of turn and it becomes this big civil war. Um, And the woman gets done in by the beast that she's riding on um, and that's that's the picture that's going on there and that's very common of course through human history where the very thing that kind of seduces the world um, uh, then the world kind of turns on that which has seduced it um, and so part of the reason why the woman and the beast aren't going to win is because they actually end up fighting each other they destroy destroy themselves um, we'll see more of that and and what it might mean for us Um, But for a moment, we're just trying to get the impression of the painting here. Now we're going to hear chapter 18, and Catherine's going to come uh, again and read chapter 18 for us. And keep your ears, what impression do we get of the city as we read chapter 18? 
After this, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe! Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city! where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. 
No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, So there's Babylon, just impressions. What happens to Babylon? What's your impression? What happens to her? Self-destructs. Thank you so much. Yeah. What other impressions? So as she self-destructs, what other impressions have you got of what happens? Have a go. What else happens? Comes quickly. Yes. Self-destructs. And it happens overnight, within an hour. Yes. Um, Yep. Great. Oh, it's not great. Well, that is great. <laughs> it's a great answer. Thank you. Um, other things? Um, the whole ecosystem kind of collapses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let's just go through chapter 18, just in, in kind of sketches, the, the overview. Um, so in verses uh, 1 to 4, we get about Babylon is fallen. That's the announcement uh, there in verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So this great city who kind of rode on the beasts of power, she falls, okay? And there's a lament about her falling. She's become a dwelling for demons and and all that sort of stuff. She's fallen. Um, All the nations have drunk of her, the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, but she's fallen now, okay? She's destroyed. Um, Verse 4 is then the call out to God's people, come out of her, my people, so that you won't share in her sins, so that you won't receive any of her plagues. That's verse 4. And then in verses 5 to 8, we get retribution on Babylon. So the things that she's done to others now get done to her. Okay, and so these things happen. Verse 7, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I'm not a widow, I'll never mourn. One day the plagues will overtake her death and mourning and famine. She'll be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. So God's judgment is coming. And as we hear of God's judgment, we can think, oh, God is harsh and cruel and so on. God is completely fair. You think you care about justice? God cares about justice much more than you or I do. He is totally fair. So the things that Babylon has done mercilessly to others, God will just ensure that she gets back on her head what she's done to others being totally fair. God's judgment comes. And then as God's judgment comes, there's this retribution in 5 to 8. We get three laments, which Catherine talked about, the ecosystems disrupted. That's totally right. It's a great way to put it. There's three laments. The kings of the earth, verses 9 and 10, they lament. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, shared in her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they'll weep and mourn over her. See, they got their power and stuff by by being seduced by her. That's kind of where they got their power and their wealth from. And so they're sad that she's being destroyed. Then the merchants in verses 11 to 17, they weep um, uh, because their wealth came by trading with this 
Babylon, with this adulterous city. And so their whole wealth is tied up in this. And so they're lamenting over that. And then we get the shipmasters uh, down in verse 17. Every sea captain and all who travel by sea, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they'll exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They'll throw dust on their heads. That's a sign of mourning with uh, weeping and mourning, crying out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. See, see, the, the merchants on the ships, they're weeping because, again, their wealth and their luxury, it's all been tied up with Babylon. And so with her destruction, well, things are not so good for them either. Their shares plummet, if you like, as she is destroyed. Uh, So that's 17 to 20. And then in verses 21 to 24, the destruction comes and Babylon sinks like a stone in the sea. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such great violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be uh, found again. So here is this picture of Babylon, uh, this city who is adulterous and rich and glamorous and glorious and seduces the other powers of the world that's Babylon and what's being said here in chapter 18 is she's going to fall and it's going to be quick that's what's being sort of said that's the impression that we're given in verses 17 to 18 well how do we understand it firstly we need to understand about Babylon obviously Uh, Babylon is a term that's got a lot of definition in the Bible. So uh, we first hear about uh, Babylon or Babel right at the very start of the the Bible uh, in Genesis 11. Uh, So Babylon is where all the peoples on the earth come together and they actually plot against God to build a tower so that they can live life without God. And that's Babel right in Genesis 11. But from then on, it becomes a very old civilization. And uh, I don't know too much ancient history, but it is one of the oldest civilizations we had uh, on the Euphrates River. And that kind of continued from about 2,500 BC right through to about 600 BC. There was this city of Babylon that became a city of great importance. Babylon means um, a gateway to the gods or gateway to heaven. And so there it's the place where, where kind of people uh, establish themselves uh, to, to get to God or to, to become God uh, themselves. Um, now, Babylon became a world ruler, and this is where it becomes particularly important. In about the mid-600s, Babylon started to get really powerful. Assyria was the superpower. Assyria was, was a particularly nasty superpower. But then the Babylonians came and they conquered the Assyrians... And so Babylon became the great world superpower um, from about 626 through to 539. It was the big power on earth. Um, And initially it was used by God to take his people who are in Judah. It it captured Judah and conquered Judah and then actually destroyed Jerusalem and took the people, the Jews, and took them into captivity in Babylon. Babylon. Okay, so they went and they're in captivity in Babylon. That's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were there in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. Okay, so that's Babel, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the guy in charge. So they had this great power. They had technological skills and all that sort of stuff. They had um, opulence and you name it, all this great trading wealth. 
But kind of one of the things about Babylon, and it's kind of a key thing of them in history, is that they fell overnight, literally. <laughs> this great empire, it just went up in smoke overnight. Their end was so sudden, um, and it happened very dramatically. Cyrus the Persian came, and they were destroyed, um, and sent the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem. And so then Babylon, within the prophets, becomes this this place that's sort of symbolic. It's symbolic of the the civilization opposed to God, pagan civilization, which gets proud and powerful and arrogant and adulterous and puts itself against God and overreaches and gets too arrogant and too proud and then is destroyed in God's judgment and often happens quickly. And the judgment symbolized here is the overreaching. Um, And so in the Old Testament, uh, Babylon becomes this symbol of the judgment of God on God's enemies. Uh, It's that city which is opposed to God and can look so glamorous and so powerful and so glorious and yet in her arrogance pretends to be God. I'm never going to be done away with. I will never mourn. And yet God brings judgment upon Babylon. And so that's, that's the sort of imagery that is used often in the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel speaking about Daniel. They talk about God bringing his judgment upon this city. And then the question for us comes, well, if that's what's sort of said about Babylon, then what is Babylon? How do we identify it? And that's the question, and often there are, there are things. And we, we need to just have a little bit of a think at this point. Hope, hope we don't lose you at this point. We need to think about identity and equivalence. Okay, what does that mean? 12 is identical to 12. Okay, and only 12 is identical to 12. So if we're saying, what is Babylon, and we're looking for something that's identical to Babylon, we'll only find one place. We'll go, this is what Babylon is. And it has to be that place because there can only be one that's identical. But the way that the Bible is using the language and the impression here, it's much more got to do with what we would call equivalence. That is 12 is identical to 12, but 3 times 4 is equivalent to 12. 10 plus 2 is equivalent to 12. 11 plus 1 is equivalent to 12. 14 minus 2 is equivalent to 12. That is, there's lots of things that are equivalent to 12. And so it is with Babylon. Don't look for identity and to say, which one, there's only one Babylon. Look for the equivalence. What are the things that you know that are like this? Opposed to God. Powerful. Have all the merchants and all the seafarers and the kings of the earth all bow down because it's got power and wealth, but it's adulterous and like a prostitute, and as opposed to Christians, and wages war against Christians. What are things that are equivalent to that? Well, there's many, many things throughout history, aren't there? There are many things that are equivalent to that. And so Babylon is equivalent to Hollywood. It's equivalent to London. It's equivalent to uh, the British Empire. It's equivalent to Rome. Uh, in a certain period of time. It's equivalent to all sorts of different things and not identical. There are certain things that are a little bit different, but 
in terms of being that which is opposed to God, which is proud and arrogant and adulterous, and where people come and, and are seduced by the power, well, there are many things that are equivalent to Babylon like that. Sorry, I nearly tripped over the foldback. Um, and so Babylon represents this power, this prosperity, this materialism, decadence and corruption. And it beckons God's people, notice. The temptation for the Jews when they were in Babylon was to just become Babylonian. <laughs> because they were there for 70 years and actually God said to them, build houses and settle down there, but actually long for Jerusalem. Look for the other city. So that's what Daniel was doing, you remember. He opened his windows and he was praying because he was looking to Jerusalem even though he was in Babylon. That's what Christian people are to be doing is looking back to Jerusalem except looking to the heavenly Jerusalem. We are in Babylon but we're not to be part of it. And so here is Babylon, this place of great abominations and rebellion against God and blasphemy and it will persecute those who are of the Lamb those who stand for truth, those who dare to speak against adultery, those who dare to say that actually adultery is evil and it's not loving, they'll be persecuted. And the world will be enticed by the wealth and they'll be afraid to speak out because there'll be commercial consequences of speaking out. And they'll be amazed at the, the ability to reinvent itself of Babylon but Babylon is limited. That's why there's, you know how it goes for five and then there's a time where it was and then was not and it only goes for an hour? That language is, it's a limited power and it's God that limits it. There will be this kingdom but it will perish. It will only rule for a time under God's control. Nebuchadnezzar railed against God and his, his, uh, his will but actually he was just doing God's plan and in the end destruction came because the Lamb is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And these empires, they're always self-destructive. <laughs> always. It's always the case. Now you just think of New York in America, um, for example. And one of the ways that America projects its power is by its movies and Hollywood and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's culture. And there are good parts of that culture, great parts of that culture, but there are some parts that are highly immoral and highly terrible and as that gets projected it so incenses people those the beast if you like it so incenses people that they get in aeroplanes and drive to the world trade center they actually become self-destructive because as they watch those movies they're so horrified that they're opposed to it um you might know in my uh, home country of australia that they're having a um uh, a vote on same-sex marriage. It's like a postal survey, I think, is what it's become strange place, Australia. Um, anyway, so they're having this postal survey and there's uh, numerous arguments uh, going around against it. The most persuasive argument for me has come from a lesbian feminist. Isn't that bizarre? I'll say it again, a lesbian feminist. <laughs> so you can't accuse her of being homophobic and bigoted. <laughs> She's a lesbian feminist. Why is she opposed to it? Because what she says is that since same-sex marriage has been legalised in all sorts of places, there is massive exploitation in uh, uh, developing countries of women as they are being made surrogates. 
Um, and there's this horrible exploitation that's going on. And she's a feminist. She doesn't want men for their sexual whims exploiting vulnerable women. And so she speaks out against what she says is an accelerating boom in exploitation, exploitation of surrogacy. It's a lesbian feminist. And that's what happens again and again throughout history. Babylon looks like there's no way it could ever fall. And everyone's tied to it and it's so powerful. And yet Babylon falls so quickly. If you read about uh, people living in Austria, just before the Nazis came in, there they were in their, slightly in their decadence, and yet it fell overnight. And then of course Nazi Germany, it fell overnight. And some of us are old enough to remember the communist empire, the U- USSR, and how we just thought it wouldn't, you could never imagine it falling. Checkpoint Charlie coming down. It's ludicrous. And yet very quickly, next thing you know, Billy Graham's preaching in the heart of Moscow. It falls very quickly. And so it is with the Babylon of our age. Whatever it is, wherever you can see the equivalents, and there's certainly plenty around. It will fall quickly. It's not as powerful as it looks. The question is, when will it happen? Uh, Quickly, Jesus never gives the time and the date of his return. When is not actually important. That it will fall is what's important. That Babylon will fall, that's what's important. Don't look for identification and say, this is it and this is the only thing of Babylon and now that that's happened, this is all about to happen. No, look for equivalence. Look for lots of different things that are just like Babylon. Revelation doesn't answer the question of when. It actually gives the recounting of the fall of Babylon several times. So there's, there's sort of like the same things being told, uh, like from lots of different camera angles in the book of Revelation. And so we're not told when. But it does happen in a sense whenever empires fall. Whenever those empires that are opposed to God, when they fall and they're destroyed, that's when this happens. And it could happen any time. So be ready. Um, we've grown up in an age, of course, the uh, uh, age since the Second World War where America's been the dominant superpower. We've, most of us, I imagine, in our lifetime have been used to that. Um, and then relatively suddenly, isn't it? Suddenly there's someone who can send a nuclear bomb, it looks like, to America. <laughs> and that talk of, oh, it could never happen, it could never happen quickly and suddenly, well, it's not so sure, is it? Um, and so it could happen any time. And, and, and as with a burglar alarm, there's no point in just kind of having it on occasionally. We've got to always be ready. And so there's two responses to Babylon. The first is we can get caught up in it and just become citizens of Babylon and get caught up in the destruction. The godly are called to flee, but the ungodly in Babylon among the Jews... They actually just became part of it. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. They just wanted to enjoy the wealth and the opulence of Babylon and were destroyed when Cyrus came through. Um, And they'll lament. And those who, who attempted to kind of join forces because there's good commercial gain and so on, they will lament when Babylon is destroyed. Not lamenting because of their sin and because of their compromises. They'll lament because they're not as rich as they were. And they can no longer do those sinful things that they enjoyed doing. There's not the opportunity to do that anymore. And they will go down with Babylon. That is the ungodly response. 
But the godly response is to flee. Not literally or physically. No, Daniel was in Babylon. He couldn't flee. But in his heart, his heart was in Jerusalem. And our heart is to be in the heavenly Jerusalem. To flee, to not get caught up in the thirst for power and wealth and immorality that surrounds us. But to set our heart on things above. And to seek first the kingdom and invest our wealth and our energy and our very selves in the kingdom. And be careful about being seduced by Babylon. For it will be destroyed. The destruction of Babylon sounds terrible and we can shudder in horror as we hear of it. That's fair enough. But it is right. It is right that those who do such hideous things, that justice comes. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Which, thankfully, we've enjoyed peace for so long we don't fully get it. But when ISIS no longer controlled Mosul, I was glad. I was thankful. There is something that's actually right about Babylon's fall. And so we must not be part of it, but instead come out of it. Um, That's all kind of ideas and um, uh, my concern about that is that we can leave it kind of very out there, but it's actually a very practical thing. Um, You know, it's got to affect what job you take. Well, Babylon will say, just go for whatever's going to give you the most money and the most satisfaction, job satisfaction. That's the job. Ours is to be, which is going to best help me serve the kingdom? That's going to be the question. With, with houses, the, the world will go for which is going to give me the biggest and best house, which is going to be best for my retirement in the future and where I can make investments and make the most money out of my house. Our question is going to be, what's the best for the kingdom? If I, should I buy a house, firstly? If I do, what sort of house is actually best going to serve the kingdom and, and ministry? It's not necessarily going to be the biggest. When it comes to a car, what sort of car do you buy? Do you buy the latest? Do you buy the best car that you can possibly get on your income and just like everybody else who's got the same job that you've got? Or do you go, actually, how am I going to use this car for Christian ministry? What do I need it for? And therefore, what sort of car should I get? There's going to affect what we think about with our kids. What will Babylon think about with their kids? Well, we want our kids to be glorious. School captain, uh, incredibly capable, popular, everything. Now, our children may end up being that, but we want our kids to follow the lamb, (laughs) first and foremost. Not to be great successes at all these other... They may be that, and that may be helpful and whatever, but first and foremost... We want our kids in Jerusalem, not successful in Babylon. And the kids will know. They will know our hearts as to whether we actually want them to be really, really successful and praised here or whether actually more than anything else we want them up there. And that's what we must be like. So let's pray that we would flee and pray for our friends who live in Babylon that they too would come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for this great vision that you give to John, um, which gives us this impression of Babylon, the city that is opposed to you. And Father, we thank you for speaking the truth to us that that which is evil and opposed to you and adulterous and which looks so powerful ultimately will be destroyed and be swept away. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
and he set up the heavenly Jerusalem. We thank you that we have a home that is secure. We acknowledge, Father, that we are very tempted by the worldly Babylon and that so often we compromise and we need your forgiveness and we need the powerful work of your spirit so that we might flee and not participate. But at the same time, Father, help us to be people who love the city we're in and love the people who are around us and be encouraging all to be citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city which is better by far. We pray for your strength and help to do these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.